Okay, so one of the highlights of these conferences is often presenting cases, and today will be no exception to that rule. So we put together some really interesting cases about both STIs and PrEP, and you'll have lots of chances to vote on different questions. And all of our speakers, 100%, have agreed to be on the panel today. So <laughs> here they are. And it looks like the Supreme Court. It does. We need black robes. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you, uh, Tripp, for opening uh, this session. And I'm going to go ahead uh, with the first yes, case. Um, so again, this what we do with these cases is start out with the audience's thoughts, and then we get the panel's thoughts, and then the presenter presenter has the um, the role of discussing their thoughts um, and maybe some data. So the first question is: Among men who have sex with men, what percent of gonorrhea or chlamydia infections are missed? if only urine is screened. So you're not screening the rectum and you're not screening the pharynx. Is it 0%, 10%, 40%, or greater than or equal to 70%? Please vote. Dr. Gulick, would you like to provide us with some musical entertainment? Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> We'll There's so many songs about one. sex. All right. Okay. Um, the audience says 40% um, in 60% of the cases, and about a third of you say greater than or equal to 70%. So let's take a look at this. First of all, um, a couple of points that I would like to emphasize, and I just realized I forgot to ask the panel their thoughts. That's nice. Let's okay. go back. Well, actually, I didn't answer, I so, okay, good, never mind. Um, so, panelists, what, what would you like to say about well, this? Good, and don't, don't, you can talk about the right answer, or just your oh, thoughts yeah. would be great. Oh, thank you, Steph uh, Stephanie. All right, Jody, jump in. Um, I can say that we did And you have to press your mic to make it go. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank Is you. that better? So we did a study of about 450 MSM in our HIV clinic, and we had about an 18% rectal chlamydia and gonorrhea rate, um, and 85% of the patients were asymptomatic at the rectal site. We would have missed the vast majority of these infections if we had only done urine screening. So my suspicion, at least in our clinic, would be the um, option number four. And let me just ask you, um, you mentioned that they were asymptomatic, but of those asymptomatic men, how many were also infected at the urine and thus would have been detected with only urine screening? Do you remember that? It was something like about 15 to 20% of them had co-infection also okay. of the urine, but most of them were infected, mono-infected at the rectal site. Okay, any other comments from the panel on that? I Sue think, Blank, I, think I suspect, and Mike? Of, I think there are a number of studies, actually, okay. that confirm that the study from Los Angeles, sort of similar numbers. Great, okay. And Sue, any comments from you, since you are the guru? Um, yeah, actually, one of the slides I showed this morning showed mm -hmm. that um, it's really, it's equal or above 70%. Okay. All right. Well, in the interest of time, so, um, so clearly 30% of you were listening to Dr. Blank and the rest of you were not caffeinated enough since it was a very early talk. Um, and I know you were probably overwhelmed. Um, so a couple of points I just want to make with these data sites. First of all, we talk a lot about these studies being done in HIV clinics and men, men who have sex with men and about the very high rates. Um, really interesting MMWR that just came out um, in the spring of this year that highlighted prevalence of extra 
hospital, chlamydia and gonorrhea among men who have sex with men in community venues. And these were bars, clubs, fitness centers, and other locations frequented by these men in the community in Houston, Miami, New York City, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. And what I would like you to take away here is that about 13% of these men had any extra genital STD. So this is not just men who are seeking care at STD clinics. The prevalence of rectal chlamydia was about 7%, rectal gonorrhea 5, uh, pharyngeal gonorrhea 5, and then that pesky little pharyngeal chlamydia that we heard about this morning was only about 2%. So just for, this is a very prevalent um, infection. Um, lots of data, as Mike and others pointed out. I'm sorry, Steve, did you want to come? about that. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, you know, the CDC guidance talks about uh, testing at sites of exposure, which means that we, we do talk with our patients about practices and so on. And I'm wondering whether you think there's a, a, a different yield by doing that approach as opposed to some clinics that kind of routinely offer three site screening. Could not, could not agree more and actually have some slides to talk about that momentarily. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Um, don't look, don't, don't ask, don't tell, don't look don't find. That's my kind of mantra, right? So if you don't, if you don't ask, people won't tell you, and if you don't test there, you won't find it. Um, just a, just a, this is the explicit, I think, nice summary of data from 2014 that shows you um, that overall, between 70 to 90 percent of infections, infections would be missed by only screening with urine. So it really is the majority of infections. And as going back to what Dr. Dean Odom said, most of these are going to be asymptomatic. And here's what Dr. Johnson is is referring to um, regarding the CDC STD screening recommendations for men who have sex with men, um, with or without HIV, actually, at this point, important to remember, um, really annually in every three to six months, at, if at increased risk, um, condom use is really not a factor here. You Just because someone says they use condoms with a certain site or with certain partners should not deter you from offering screening at that site. And then screening really should be directed, okay? I always show this cartoon because some of us don't really, we may not, we may think we don't, I mean, we want to know, of course, we're like, you know, the ultimate people who want to know, but many providers are like, oh my God, please, mm -hmm. um, just as, as Dr. Agwu pointed out this morning. So you do really have to ask. Um, some really cool information, also brand new, hot off the press, is that the FDA in May actually approved the first diagnostic tests for the extragenital testing of chlamydia and gonorrhea. You may recall that before, you used to have to have your local lab or your um, whatever lab certified to do these tests, but you now can order the Aptima Combo 2 and the expert CT uh, NG assays that are cleared, so you don't have to worry about that so much anymore, assuming you use these tests. Um, and then just a reminder, people really don't mind doing self-collection. I talk about this a lot. Um, it, it is a very nice approach, and I show these slides to remind you that we've developed these tools to help you um, put these up in a bathroom at your clinic. If you want copies, go to that URL or contact me. Um, a lot of people are implementing self-testing programs um, in their clinics. Sue, please. Uh, yeah, we were in getting back to the issue of FDA approval for extragenital testing. If your labs aren't offering extragenital testing, it should be a pretty easy one for them to get up and running in case you do have trouble getting extragenital tests done on your patients. 
Thank you very much. All right. I am going to go on to the next case, which actually I thrip I thought was your case, but it looks like, is that you? It's my case. I guess I'm going to stay up. All right. Any other comments about the um, extra genital burden of infection, um, consequences, or screening? Questions, comments? Um, yes. Quick question at the, at the mic, please. question. Quick but statement. This is all relevant. Only. Gen well, go ahead. Go ahead. It's also relevant to women. It's not just a MFMs. Mm -hmm. Well, there's debate about that, I would say. It's relevant in terms of targeted testing, the, certainly pharyngeal screening. I think the question of rectal testing, I agree, should be directed by sexual history. Absolutely. Routine rectal testing is a whole, screening, sorry, is a whole other issue. But thank you for pointing that out. It's a really good, really good point. Okay, let's do a syphilis case. All right, this is a 20-year-old man who was referred by a partner who, quote unquote, had syphilis. That's all he knows. He considers himself healthy. He doesn't have any symptoms. He's had two episodes of rectal gonorrhea in the last year. He sometimes uses meth on the weekends. His sexual history is that he's had six partners in the last three months, um, including receptive and insertive anal and oral sex. His last unprotected sex was, of course, last night, 12 hours ago. Um, no information on any of his partner's health. So he doesn't know what this syphilis thing is about. That's all he knows. He's otherwise healthy. He's not on any meds. He had a rapid HIV test done today that was negative. On examination, he's completely normal. You order syphilis serology, which is your EIA, the uh, treponemal screening test that Dr. Uggenbraun described, it, described, and you screen for gonorrhea at all exposed sites. Uh, you do chlamydia in the urine and the rectum, and the question is, which of the following do you do now? Base future treatment on results of screening tests. You don't need to treat him for anything. Treat him now with a single injection of benzathine penicillin, IM. Treat him now with the first of three weekly injections of benzathine penicillin, or give him doxycycline to give to his most recent sex partner. Dr. Augenbraun, I'm going to ask you to comment when the votes when come in. Hang the, on one um, second. Hang on one second. We're going to show. So a lot of people, the majority, want to on. treat him with a single injection, but the 25% who want to base future treatment, I want you to pay careful attention to Dr. Augenbraun's discussion. The um, when was the exposure to this partner with presumed? He's syphilis? not sure because he's, he's had quite sure. a few of them. Okay, and uh, but he do we says have it was any... he got a call recently, so within the last week. And do we have uh, previous uh, no recent? We have nothing. We got nothing. So he 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 gets a shot of penicillin right now, and uh, I'd wait for the test to come back, and if the test is positive, I'd complete a th set of three shots. Why? Well, um, he may have incubating syphilis, and the test, as I mentioned before, could be erroneously incorrect. So just telling me that he had a partner who had syphilis, he buys a shot for potential early incubating syphilis. If the RPR or the serologic test is positive, I don't know when he got syphilis. It could have been, you're telling me I have no other data. I have no, no other preceding data. RPR or treponemal-specific tests, I have no history. So it could have been two years ago, or three years ago, or four years ago. So that would be my approach. Thank you. Dr. Blank. 
Well, this is a really great opportunity to make use of a syphilis and reactor registry with a simple call to the health department. We might be able to find we might be able to find some serologic and treatment history. That's why you're here. How many people have heard of the syphilis reactor database? Oh my goodness. I'm so glad these people are here. Sue, do you want to tell them what this is? Sue, and can you tell people how to access it? Sure. If you just go to the basic um, New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene website and just look up syphilis and reactor registry in the search engine, you should be, or go to the four providers section and you can uh, trace through to, fi to find the syphilis and reactor registry. What it is, is basically it boils down to a phone number. We, you can call us with patient uh, name, date of birth. Um, we might ask you for some additional information. Um, and we would get your license number. We'll, ca we'll call you back, and we will give you the information that we have for that person if that individual was ever tested and or treated in New York City and the report was made to the health department. One of the great things about syphilis, because it was sort of the only STI that people cared about from the very beginning of time, right, in the 1940s, is that we have a huge um, history of um, syphilis research care. And so we have these databases on people's serology going back sometimes decades, and they are located at the health department. So you can get the information that Dr. Augenbraun uh, requested. So really, really critical. Dr. Agwu, did you have a comment? I'm not saying just having a seizure, looking at all these things, this young man, is opportunities to intervene in so many ways. So I think, you know, the some inquiry about his encounter last night, is this a kid that needs PEP? I think Absolutely. he definitely needs PrEP. I mean, I think there's so many things. Are you excited to have him here and opportunities to engage in substance use? I mean, just so much richness in, yeah. in, in his presentation. Yeah, the case, there could be about 15 choices, but we had to sort of make it manageable. So I, I would do want in the interest of time, any other comments from the panel? I, I do want to emphasize that that single dose of penicillin, benzathine penicillin, sorry, is um, partner management. It's appropriate partner management for the exposure, and you always treat partners um, without knowing anything about whether they're currently infected. Presumptive management is what it's called, and one of the pillars of of STD control, and I'll talk about that. You, you already heard about the treatment issues. I put the two doses of penicillin in, not only to get you thinking about the appropriate approach um, in your care setting, but also just to bring up what I brought about before, is that we're gonna be studying this, or we are currently studying this in a randomized control trial to see in HIV-infected patients which is better. And you've heard the rest of these, I think. Um, just a reminder how you do partner management in syphilis. We could have a whole talk, I think, on partner management, but let's just review view this really quickly. If you see a person with primary, secondary, or early latent syphilis, remember early latent is suspected acquisition in the last year without symptoms. How would you get that? You would know it from the reactor database. Or you might have somebody who says, you know, yeah, six months ago I had this big sore on my penis and then two weeks later I developed a diffuse rash. That's a pretty good history. Um, so you have somebody with early latent or primary secondary, you want to treat all partners within who were sexually in contact with that person within the 90 days prior to diagnosis. It doesn't matter what the results of their screening tests are, okay? So you're presumptively treating. Um, if you have partners that you can contact with 
who have had contact, sexual contact, um, longer than that 90 days. Um, you want to treat presumptively if the serologic tests aren't available and you don't know if you're going to get follow-up. But if you do have the opportunity to screen them, you probably don't need to treat them. So just that you know that. And I think the other point, uh, points have been very nicely made here. Any comments on this from the panel's perspective? I think it's helpful because people sometimes don't really uh, recognize those things. Um, expedited partner management. Sue, please. I have uh, just one comment on partner management. You as providers, at least I can speak for New York State, I can't speak for any other uh, areas that may be represented in the room. Um, if you choose to work with a patient to get uh, partners managed and you know if you have any direct involvement beyond uh, consulting with the patient, there are, you are essentially going to be held harmless uh, in terms of trying to work to do partner management as long as you do it correctly and don't disclose the patient's, the primary patient's information. Um, but that's also why health departments are around because that's something that health departments do and do I, you know, with tremendous frequency. And so um, just call the health department, they can help you out. Okay. Jody. Just to add, EPT is also very important for your pregnant patients. You're going to do a test of cure for chlamydia at four weeks, and that will often be positive unless the expedited partner therapy has been put in place. So think about that for your pregnant Can you women. define expedited partner management again, just for to be very clear, because that's what this slide says. Yeah, so this is, this is um, thinking outside the individual in front of you and providing antibiotics or a prescription for the person to deliver to their partner. That implies the person's going to tell the person, their partner, that they have the STI, which is often the barrier and the reason for discussion. Um, but studies show, there are studies in pregnant women showing significant efficacy when these EPT programs are in place at preventing reinfection um, rates with gonorrhea and chlamydia. Great. And just a reminder, the CDC has a great website um, that I've referenced here um, that shows you the, the legal status of expedited partner management. Let's do one more quick question about this case. Would you offer him doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis for STI? Remember I showed you before that the Epergay study um, showed reductions in syphilis and chlamydia, but not gonorrhea. Yes, no, or I have no idea. That sounds crazy for more reasons than I have time to discuss. I do know that some people are doing it here, and I do want to hear what people's thoughts are about this. Let's see. No, but a one in four would. 10% um, of you are, are feeling maybe not. So what does our panel think, and what is the current status of doxy prep in the area? Sue, you and I have discussed this, and I wonder if you want to say a couple of things. Well, in terms of this particular particular exposure, we're really focused. the The case was set up so that we're focused on syphilis. Mm -hmm. We don't know about other exposures, and right. and um, given a history of meth use, it sounds like multiple partners. Um, not being a great historian, it's not unreasonable to think about providing coverage for other organisms with doxycycline. Okay. In this guy, you are going to remember treat him for exposure to syphilis. So the benefit of the doxy would probably be for chlamydia, right? But not for gonorrhea. So Correct. Is, yeah. And uh, Dr. Gulick. Yeah, I was going to say uh, we need to prioritize and not overwhelm this guy mm -hmm. as well. And the most important, mm -hmm. one of the most important things we can do for him is get him on HIV prep. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So I, I might ask, prioritize that. Can I ask um, how many people have used doxypep for STIs? Anybody want to? Okay, so a couple people have. Um, people have been activating an activist about this, right? There are a lot of people who think that we should be doing this, and I just remind you what the Epergay study showed. I uh, don't need to go through this again. There are now, um, and there are some pros, there are, are some cons, there are now several randomized controlled trials underway looking at this, including in women in sub-Saharan Africa. So I would say it's not ready for prime time yet, but it may be soon, and you're going to get questions about it from your patients. But the, you're, you're suggesting about this case that he be treated first and then going forward, that that would be an option for him? Uh, I'm not sure. I uh, he should that. be treated for syphilis because he's a partner. The, whether you give him the doxyprep is more of a general STI post-exposure prophylaxis question. Okay, shifting gears. FC is a 34-year-old gay man. He's HIV negative. He's in a 10-year relationship with a partner who's HIV positive. The partner is on ART. His viral load is suppressed below 20 consistently. The patient who comes to see you requests HIV prep. His physical exam is normal. His baseline creatinine is 0.8. His UA is negative. What do you recommend? Take more history, no prep, daily TDF-FTC, on-demand TDF-FTC, daily TAF-FTC, or on-demand TAF-FTC. Okay, we got over 50 answers, so it's a tie. 44% want more history, 44% daily TDF-FTC. Steve, what did you vote for? I voted for Take More History. And um, I think there's, there was a fascinating discussion at, what, at one of our meetings about what it means to be monogamous. Monogamish. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, seri the, the serious point I'm trying to make is that <laughs> Is that that some people, you know, might be kind of emotionally monogamous? That is, this is their partner and so on, but they still may be involved with other partners. And so, I think it's very important um, to take more history. And then, and then you have to wonder if somebody is educated about U equals U and is requesting prep. Is, is that really an agenda that maybe they're they need it? So, Allison. Yeah. My stance tends to be if people are asking for PrEP to give it to them. So I think we take more history, absolutely, because trying to get a sense of what's going on. I just wonder if in this case, would it be maybe on-demand PrEP, maybe a, a different thing or more, more episode-associated? Because maybe when he goes to Miami, he's not monogamous. When he's in New York, he is. Or you know, maybe there's something that's driving that. So I think teasing that out would be important. Okay. All right. So further history reveals that the couple is monogamous and have not used condoms, quote, in years with one another. Same question. Now that you know that, what do you recommend? No prep, daily TDF FTC, on demand, daily TAF FTC. More history. <laughs> she said more history. Ah. On demand, TAF FTC. Yeah, again, is it aspirationally monogamous? <laughs> Monogamous is monogamous in this case. They do not have sex outside the relationship. Thank you for that clarification. 
Okay, 57% of you still want to use TDFFTC, and 30% say no prep. Panel? Anyone want to ring in here? Is there anything people are less truthful than about sex? Are there any, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> Could you rephrase that? <laughs> I mean, people are less truthful about than sex. I mean, oh, I just I don't, don't know. know. You know, Age, you, seem, you seem to be suggesting <laughs> that whatever you're, you hear is ironclad Alcohol intake. <laughs> I, 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 think, I think protection is better here. I mean, I'm just not convinced. So I think it sounds like most of the audience was swayed and our panel certainly is swayed by the fact that the person is requesting PrEP. But then it's an interesting case here where the understanding was incomplete, right? And so he thought he needed PrEP because of his partner and was not up to date on the latest risks of transmission. And so Everyone knows the results of the partner study, which this particular patient and his partner fall right into. So 1166 zero different couples, meaning one's positive, one's negative, from 14 European countries. About two thirds are heterosexual and a third homosexual. Median FOB 1.3 years, 58,000 condomless sex acts, no PrEP or PEP. And then the number of negative partners who converted in this study was? Zero, zero. So it, there is a confidence interval if you scan down, but looking at any sex at all, vaginal sex, anal sex, insertive anal sex, or receptive anal sex with ejaculation, zero is the point estimate because there were no seroconversions. But there was a confidence interval around this. Uh, and the Opposites Attract study, which was sponsored by what famous country down under? <laughs> so 343 serodiscordant MSM couples in Australia, Brazil, Thailand, um, no exclusion for ART. Again, serodiscordant meaning one's positive, one's negative. Um, and they did not exclude either for ART use or undetectability or PrEP use. Over 16,000 condomless sex acts. No new linked infections, zero, um, following people over time. So does U equals U based on these data? Um, not shown here was the Partners 2 study, which looked at the same question but added many more as MSM. Again, zero transmissions in that group. And so the CDC said in September 2017, people who take ART daily as prescribed and achieve and maintain an undetectable viral load have, quote, effectively no risk of transmission to their negative partner. And NIAID said the same thing. The, uh, now over a year ago, science validates U equals U HIV prevention message. Um, people living with HIV who are completely durably suppressed by treatment will not transmit to their negative partner, as said by NIAID <laughs> Director Tony Fauci. <laughs> who was chief resident at Cornell. So of course we all believe him. Okay, this is going back to you. So U equals U, 
take more history, make sure people know what's going on, because a lot of people still are not aware of these data. Is this back to you? Oh, no, no, sorry, this is me. So you, you go on with this case. Yes, I've forgotten this. Routine rectal chlamydial NAT testing is positive in this individual. Besides treating him with ceftriaxone and azithro, what do you recommend? And your choices are start prep, he's having unsafe sex. B, start prep, his partner's having unsafe sex. C, start prep and consider couples counseling. <laughs> or D, no prep. Okay. All right, so everyone agrees that there's a reason to start prep. It kind of doesn't matter, right? Was it him? Was it his partner? Do we really need couples counseling? Well, maybe. <laughs> maybe, people are saying. Okay. All right, that's that case. All right, so this is a classic question again that uh, several of us get all the time. There's a 33-year-old man with well-controlled HIV who is diagnosed with a rash consistent with secondary syphilis. It's confirmed by serology. He has no indication for um, a lumbar puncture. He's treated appropriately with a single dose of benzathine penicillin for his uh, secondary syphilis. On the day that he's treated, and some people will ask, when should I get that baseline RPR? Because sometimes there's a lag between the time of diagnosis and the time that you treatment, and, sh and titers can shift a little bit. But on the day that he's treated, his serum RPR is 1 to 1,024, so a vigorous um, immune response that we sometimes see with secondary syphilis. He's had two recent sex partners in the last 90 days, um, and both are treated in the same clinic with documentation. So you're pretty confident that his partners have been treated, okay? He comes back in three months. Why? Because you're supposed to be checking serologies every three months in people living with HIV, and his serum RPR is 1 to 512. So that is a what-fold reduction in his titer? Anybody want to comment? It's a single dilution. That's a two-fold reduction in his titer, okay, just to remind you. But just remember, it's a, one, it's a half, okay? So it's cut in half. Serum RPR at three months is 1 to 512. He comes back in six months, which is his second titer check. Please don't check his titer more frequently than that. We'll, we'll get to that. Now his serum RPR is 1 to 64, okay? So now you don't have to do the math, but he's declined more than fourfold, right? Because twofold was one to 512. Um, fourfold would be one to 256, and he's all the way down now to 164. So that's a pretty good response by our measures, okay? In nine months, his serum R is one to 32. So he's gone down one dilution, but according to what you heard from Dr. Augenbrun this morning, that's not necessarily a significant change because you can't really call a single change in the dilution necessarily significant, okay? Could be just a measurement error. And he comes back in one year for his sort of definitive test of cure. Um, and the serum RPR is one to eight. He's had no new partners, no known exposures to syphilis. Um, he has had no intercurrent STDs, and you've been screening him actually every three months at all exposed sites. So you're pretty confident that this man is telling you his accurate sexual history. What do you do now? So again, secondary syphilis, classic symptoms, very high titer, an appropriate response to appropriate treatment at six months, but an RPR that is positive at one year of one to eight. 
Whoops, where is my question? Okay, do you want me to keep going? That's okay. Um, so you think about that while we are, um, while we are gonna ask you the question. What would you do now? Thank you, Roxy. Oh, that's the wrong question. We definitely don't want to. <laughs> we don't have it. Really? Okay. Um, okay. Well, yeah, I will, um, I will ask you what the options would be. So um, the options would be, let's see, let me, let me give you some options and then we'll, actually, they're not in the handout probably there, but let me give you some options. You can think about it and then we'll ask for our people to raise their hands. Um, he's asymptomatic, I should say. His exam is normal. Um, the options are to consider him a treatment failure and just repeat the course of treatment. So give him, uh, uh, give him actually three doses of benzathine penicillin. So maximize his treatment. Um, another one would be to give him an LP because you're concerned about an untreated central nervous system reservoir. Um, and then another would be, let's just choose three for the sake of our aging memories, um, would be to just ignore it and consider him serofast and test him again at some indeterminate period, which we will discuss in a moment. So one, two, three. How many, how many people would retreat him with three doses of benzathine penicillin considering him some, some of what of a treatment failure? Anybody like that? Okay. Oh, this is where the ARS is necessary, because I know some of you would do that. You cannot, you cannot, you can't lie to me. You can't lie to me. I mean, it's just like impossible, because I know you all. The second one is how many people think he needs an LP for assessment of a reservoir of neuroinfection? Okay, this is like not working. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that, Allison. And then the third one is how many people just want to repeat his serology? Maybe you are just all like so experienced now with syphilis that you know. All right. I'm going to ask the panel to weigh in on this and apologize for the lack of the ARS. Any, anyone want to comment? Steve? Well, I mean, he's had a, first of all, I'd quiz him for symptoms just to make sure he's truly and, asymptomatic. And when you say that, tell me what symptoms you're most concerned about that people really need to be aware of, especially. Uh, well, neurologic exactly. symptoms, um, otic hearing loss, ocular Thank symptoms, you. those kind of things. Chronic headache. But, but I've, he, missed, I've missed that as a sign of neurosyphilis. I just want to point out. But he's had a good serologic response. He has secondary syphilis. I mean, there are studies of second, secondary syphilis where people continue to decline and don't become negative until, you know, 24 months. And so I think I'd be comfortable, um, you know, just following him closely. Okay. Dr. Augenbrunn, what do you think? I agree. I mean, I think this is a good response. You know, it doesn't quite fit the intervals promoted in the guidelines, but I think there needs to be some flexibility, and the person was right to sort of sit on it and watch okay. it, and I think it's declined. I will say one thing that, and sometimes I see this, people repeat the titers right after the patient received treatment, and you'll get burned because, uh, especially with some, uh, something like this, where there's such probably a high burden of organism and an immune response that you treat the patient, and what you'll find if you repeat the titer the next month is that the titer's gone up, yeah. and you'll think that the patient's failed therapy, and it's one of the reasons to hold off and do it based on the intervals that are promoted. Please don't repeat testing too frequently. I call it breaking into jail. It's like you, you're just creating trouble for yourself. You really don't want to go there. Um, so so, so be, be very attentive to that. What in a theoretical guideline-driven world would you like to see at one year? What's the definition of cure uh, that CDC promulgates at one year? What, what, should, his treat, what, what, should, what should his serology be? Non-reactive, 
So the definition is of appropriate response is fourfold decline by six months, non-reactive by one year. So that's why we're talking about him. So just a couple of things, um, a reminder of the treponemal test performance uh, for syphilis. Um, uh, again, Dr. Ogdenbrug covered these really nicely, but this is just a brand new review that was just published in CID by Anna Park and colleagues, um, just um, citing really the sensitivity and specificity of the new uh, treponemal test, which is really quite nice. Um, and there are some good overviews of this kind of concept of serofast uh, state in HIV-infected people. Um, I would say we really just don't know enough about this, and I would emphasize that the treatment trial that I mentioned this morning, that's the single dose versus the three doses of early syphilis in HIV-infected patients, is going to really give us the best answer that we need to this question. So we'll really have an opportunity to do that. I'm going to transition to Dr. Dianotum for the next case, but Steve, please go ahead. Yeah, I agree with the point about screen, uh, screening too frequently, but I think the environment that we're currently in where we have so many, such a high prevalence of syphilis, oftentimes we're also screening for a re-exposure or reinfection, and I think that leads to more frequent testing. You know, the, the CDC guidelines for people without HIV are serologic testing at six months and 12 months and so on, but I think because of this kind of constant exposure, you're often inter interposing additional screening that yep. is appropriate. I yep. agree. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that's a great point. Jody. All right. So this is a case of a 26-year-old presents to your clinic to establish care. She asks about HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis based on a commercial she saw on TV. The New York City advertisements for PrEP are the best I've ever seen. Kudos to the team. They're sex positive, they're beautiful, I love them. She's in good health with no known medical problems. One of her male sex partners is HIV positive. She's seen him take ART, but she does not know his viral load. When you get her labs back, her fourth generation antigen antibody test is non-reactive. Her CBC, BMP, LFTs look fine. She is hepatitis B surface antigen positive, which is unbeknownst to her and hepatitis B surface antibody negative. I don't think, did the, I don't think the audience response system, we don't, didn't set it up for this, correct? You don't see one, you don't see one, right? Okay, so before I go on to the next part, I wanna take a show of hands. Based on this data that you have in front of you, would you start prep on this woman today, yes or no? Yeses, yeses, hands first. And noes? Okay. So to throw another wrinkle, her hepatitis C antibody is negative, her STI screen is negative, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and RPR, and her urine HCG test is now positive. <laughs> this really happens, as you know. This isn't a made-up. These things happen every single day. So again, a show of hands, how many people would start PrEP today? I see a few very loud hands in the back. <laughs> Two hands in the back. And how many people would not start PrEP today? I think we got some people moving to the no side. Great. Um, does the panel want to discuss before I go to some discussion of um, what this is about? What are you? What would you do? I want more happy information because she just told me she's antigen positive. So great. Very good. Any other thoughts? 
The hepatitis B is a significant complication here. You know that if she has hepatitis B, she needs hepatitis B, could potentially need hepatitis B-directed therapy, which just happens to be often the same drug that you would give her for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, so that's sort of what this case is about. That's the additional information. So it's already been discussed that TDF-HIV PrEP was approved in 2012. I copied here for you the USPSTF PrEP guidelines from 2019 with the grade A recommendation. And I pasted for you what it says specifically about pregnancy, that pregnancy is associated with an increased risk of HIV acquisition and that use is, is considered for use is the way it's currently worded in pregnancy. Um, the complication with the hepatitis B and the pregnancy in this particular case is that you would not want to start her on PrEP today. There would be a discussion with her OBGYN provider about the status of her hepatitis B infection. You would discuss whether or not she meets treatment criteria for hepatitis B in pregnancy. But the recommendation in pregnancy is not to treat hepatitis B until she's above 28 weeks if her viral load is above 200,000. So that's a lot of additional information you don't have in front of you today. So for those reasons, she would, you'd want to give her PrEP, but you wouldn't give her based on the hepatitis B. Um, does the panel have other um, comments or questions about this? I'll just say I think it's a really hard one because she came in wanting PrEP. Um, and, and so you don't want to lose that opportunity to capitalize on what's obviously an incredibly insightful motivation, right, and support her in that. But biologically it's really not um, safe given her positive surface antigen. So I think that's the struggle that we're having in my mind. <laughs> okay, because of the webcast, can thank you so much. Um, I, I think I would probably want to try to get her partner involved and find out more about what's going on with him because you don't want her to get HIV infected during pregnancy. That's a really bad time. So I, I, you know, we, we want to wait a little bit on her, but we also maybe if we can get her partner in and to bring in his lab results, or if he's in the same institution, check out his viral load, so and they promote condom use during the pregnancy. So that's my comment. I think this is a great one where one size does not fit all. It's almost an intensive case management opportunity to really bring all of your tools to bear to make sure that she doesn't get infected. Jody, you may have said this, but do you want to explicitly mention, sorry, why um, prep with tenofovir-based product is contraindicated here? What's the worst that can happen? So the concern with active, if she has viremia and active hepatitis B, is that if she's on and off the PrEP, then she would be at significant risk of hepatic flare, which can lead to liver failure. So because of that, you would not counsel her in the same way that you would someone for regular PrEP, where you know they may be on and off based on their perceived risk. Um, we obviously recommend people to continue on PrEP for a long period of time. Most of the studies, particularly the ones in the South among our MSMs, show those really high rates of coming on and off, on two months, off two weeks, on two months, off two weeks. That would be particularly problematic in a woman with active hepatitis B infection in pregnancy. So, Jody, just to play devil's advocate, I mean, if we took, um, to follow up on Jeannie's point about, well, she came in for PrEP, she's at high risk, they're not using condoms, and actually the motivation to use condoms is even lower because now she's pregnant, so not preventing that. And so if it would just be a matter of how she uses it, what would be the issue with just saying start the PrEP, don't come off at all? Just curious as another way to approach it. No, I, 
with you in my um, if I was seeing her my, in my mind I'm thinking this would be a great there's several reasons why she may need to be on TDFFTC I just wouldn't do that in isolation without having a discussion with OBGYN without having a discussion with the patient it's more complicated than a simple answer yeah I'd also be interested in how you're following her HIV risk if she's requesting PrEP she's at risk there's a still a serologic window between a positive antigen test and acquisition of HIV. I mean, would you retest her in a short time or would you do HIV RNA testing or, I mean. So that's a great question. The current window that you think of with the fourth generation is nine days. So it's much less than the 28 days we're used to thinking of in the old days. Um, if she is speaking, thinking in her mind of an exposure she had three days ago, on the other hand, I totally agree with you. These, these um, questions that you'll learn from her and these discussions are going to feed what you do. But this is a case, I think, where you need to be on the top of your game as to how informed you are to have that discussion, right? So, and that's the challenging piece and why you probably do need to have more of an interdisciplinary approach, as, as you mentioned, um, to, to do this. So thanks, great case. And I love your idea about bringing the partner in. We always recommend that. A lot of times they don't take us up on it, but no matter who the patient is, because we're talking about STI so frequently, having the partner in the room is incredibly helpful. 27-year-old gay man, baseline HIV antigen antibody test is negative, starts PrEP with daily TDF-FTC. He has excellent adherence. He uses condoms intermittently. At week four, coming back, his uh, antigen antibody test is negative. Eight weeks later, it's repeated, and the antigen antibody test is again negative. At week 24, the same test is HIV antigen antibody test is now positive. His immunoblot for HIV-1 and HIV-2 are both negative, and his HIV RNA is less than 20 copies per mil. What's going on? What's your interpretation? A, he's not infected. This is a false positive antigen antibody test. B, he is infected. It's a false negative immunoblot test. C, he he is infected, PrEP has decreased the HIV RNA level, or D, I need more information. Okay, so 44% was the most popular answer, false positive test, 35% need more information, 19% PrEP has decreased the HIV RNA level. Panel, anybody wanna ring in? What did you choose? Allison. <laughs> the keys never look at trip, but... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, so, that's what everyone said. <laughs> you know, I, I went with A. We've had quite a few of these cases where people are, they're, they're not infected and they've had this, whether LabCorp says A, Quest says B, et cetera, and they haven't been. So I don't know if I could explain all the background, but I, I, that's why I picked A. So your choice was A. Who picked a different choice? Steve? Well, I think A is possible, but I chose actually I need more information. I mean, the... Always a good choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just in life, I need more information. But, the, uh, but you know, it... What more information would you like? I mean, just kind of going through the test positivity, when you have a negative immunoblot, it kind of suggests the absence of antibody, which would suggest your antigen antibody test is being triggered by the antigen. And usually, if you have a positive antigen, you're going to have a, you know, a, a positive RNA. So, you know, that's a little bit of a disconnect. But I, I think when we've, we've been involved with these cases, because they're high risk of acquiring HIV, I think we have to go to great lengths 
to, to prove that if it's a false positive. So we may do other types of, of HIV tests, like a qualitative DNA test, or even like an archive, or something like that, just to see if we can have some other evidence to kind of sort this out. And then, obviously, repeat testing after an interval. So that's where we are with PrEP, because things are more complicated now, particularly because PrEP, he's on two active agents, and so could the HIV RNA level be falsely lowered in the setting of acute infection? This is not an uncommon scenario, this case. Um, everyone's aware of the CDC's algorithm today, so we start with the antigen-antibody combination test. Um, if it's negative, we can assuredly tell the patient that they are not HIV infected. And if it's positive, it goes to this immunoassay, which tests for both one and two, and we're familiar with all that. The tricky part is the one on the right, right? So the, the combo test is positive, but the immunoassays are negative. And then what do we do with that? So they recommend NAT testing, um, which they did in this case. And his was negative, which says negative for HIV-1. But again, with PrEP, it's a little trickier um, because could the PrEP have lowered the RNA level? So what do we do? Um, just to remind you, and Steve was getting at that, at this, there is a window period for all of these tests that we need to be aware of. This man is at high risk. He's having repeated possible exposures. And you're well aware that that's why we use the different tests. And the window period for the HIV RNA test is as short as 10 days, but that's 10 days. Um, and then the antigen antibody test coming in at about 14 days. So could we be in a window period-like situation? But as Steve said, it would be strange to have the rapid test be positive, but the RNA be negative. Again, is it because the antivirals are on board? It's tricky. So you do repeat testing. That's more information. And one week later, the same test is positive. The immunoblot is still negative, and the viral load is still less than 20 copies. Still on yeah. prep. And he's still taking prep. And how did you choose one week? Are you going to discuss that, or was that just <laughs> random? Because that's a good question in my mind. Yeah, it was pretty random. OK, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd point out that even great minds like Dr. Gillick sometimes <laughs> just pick things out of the sky. Well, because we got these tests back, we're like, what's going on? I don't know. Let's repeat them. Yeah. Oh, it was Christmas, Valerie. Reminds me. It's always Friday and Christmas at the same time. And it's 5 o'clock. And OK. So now what? Continue prep and retest. Add a PI to his prep and retest add an integrase inhibitor to his PrEP and retest, or stop PrEP and retest? What would you do? Okay, so over half said stop PrEP and retest, um, and a third said continue PrEP and retest, and then fewer people are interested in expanding to three drug regimens. So there's sort of an emerging strategy here, what to do with these interesting and conflicting tests. Uh, this is summarized in a nice paper in uh, OFID, and they talk about the three strategies that we just discussed and that there are pros and cons with each. So continuing PrEP, which about a third of you chose, uh, the pro is if he's adherent and has a low pretest probability of HIV, um, th 
then it's unlikely to be a true positive, and continuing PrEP would continue to decrease his risk of HIV infection. Um, continuing PrEP in the setting of emerging infection is the con because he may select drug resistance, as you well know. Um, the second strategy, start ART, so add a third drug to what he's already taking, um, is reasonable. If he's infected, you are preventing the emergence of drug resistance. You're potentially treating him super early by preventing seeding of the reservoirs, which might have benefit down the road. But the biggest con is, if he's not infected, he's now on three drug ART, and how the heck can you ever take him off of that? <laughs> So that's a problem, uh, not to mention that the diagnosis and insurance issues, right, because he's not actually HIV infected, so how the heck are you going to pay for it over time? And then the third strategy, which was the most popular on the slide, is to discontinue PrEP. The pro is maybe things will evolve and clarify, so that can facilitate the diagnosis. For instance, by allowing HIV replication if it's there. However, the con there is if he's uninfected and not on PrEP, maybe he will become infected. So it's not clear which of these three uh, you should do, and it really sets up an opportunity to talk to the person. Um, clearly, anybody you have on PrEP who has a positive test is going to be freaking out, and you're going to need to discuss it. And then I think going through these options with the patient, talking about the pros and cons, I think many people will choose choice three and just realize that they need to use condoms and not be relying on PrEP and that they are at risk as you sort things out. Jeannie. I was just going to say that um, um, in the absence of guidance, which I think would be very welcome because I think this is happening more and more, the large PrEP studies like 083 and 084, which are looking at cabotegravir, um, clearly these cases are being encountered and they have a very sophisticated laboratory algorithm for dealing with these cases. Obviously, in those studies, people generally, if there's any question, need to come off the study product, but it's going to be a good opportunity, I think, to figure out what really happens to people. So hopefully out of these very large thousand of people study we, studies, we will get more information about this. So uh, we're just about at the end, but let me tell you that we did just what, what you voted for, and we talked to him, took him off the PrEP, and then repeated his test, and his HIV antigen antibody test was now negative. And we did a different test at the lab, so that's a nice thing that you can do that is available freely is just to ask them to do a different combo test. That one was negative too. Immunoblots negative, viral RNA was negative, and HIV DNA was all negative. So the diagnosis here, of course, is this was a false positive test I repeated said that. several times. <laughs> so Allison was right. How many of you have seen a case like this? Raise your hand. Okay, look how common that is. 32%. Any comments from the panel? So we are seeing cases like this. Yeah. So just to, so we're going to finish up with our case-based discussions, but we do have um, 10 minutes, right? No, 15 minutes, sorry, or 25 minutes. I can't count. Just wow. ignore me. 
35 to 50. Day. I hate that. Um, we have lots some time for questions. And this is your opportunity. You have the panel here, all the faculty, to ask any questions um, that we might have confused you about or that we didn't get to ask. Uh, so please go ahead and uh, write your questions down, pass them to uh, the aisles, or come to the mic like is being done. Or both. I want to ask uh, just to follow up on the case we just did was why did we wait so I think the first thing that came to my mind that we very rarely talk about anymore is DNA testing and someone on the panel said DNA testing but it wasn't it was almost like an afterthought and that was the first thing that popped up and no one really ever talks about why though I'm just curious of why has the DNA test now never been discussed is it just because RNA does pick up so early but in this case, I think the first thing that came to my mind when uh, a DNA test have been helpful or, or fruitful. There was a long time when it wasn't available and, and was really only a lab test that you can get. Um, Steve, do you want to comment? Well, I, I mean, I think we've used this test intermittently over the years for other kind of false positive cases. I think the, the thing that's more difficult about these cases is we're applying it to kind of a subset of individuals that are high risk for HIV. There, there is kind of a qualitative DNA test that our lab can do, which we've done in that setting. And I also mentioned that, that we've tried the archive testing as well as, a, as another way to kind of look at, at DNA. Um, I guess I've used it anecdotally in these cases to try to sort things out and be, be more comfortable with what the serologic pattern is telling us. Have you, have you diagnosed a positive person based on DNA results? No. Hmm. Okay. Because we really don't know how good these tests yeah. are in this scenario. We just, you know, there's not a lot of data. Allison? No, I, I was going to say in, in a, taking a page from the PMTCT world, I mean, that, that's where, where we would use it, right? So in babies where the viral load may be suppressed, the RNA may be suppressed by the drugs on board, but the DNA may be positive. So I think that's one with place one test that we could use in this case, so I would agree. So it's an evolving concept. Jeannie, I think you're right that there aren't really no guidelines. This paper I pulled for you is just some good ideas that people have put together, and we really need more data to be able to do it. Valerie. Hey. So uh, I'd like to know if anybody would change their mind if the patient had been on PrEP using a long-acting drug. Um, I mean, one of the biggest things that I worry about with cabotegravir is that tail period. But of course, this person had been re recently on PrEP. But let's say he had received cabotegravir. How would that change the whole picture? So is everybody aware that cabotegravir, it's, it's still investigational. It's the injectable integrase inhibitor. And one injection, you can have levels detectable for over a year. So it lasts a long time. And the concern that Val's bringing up is you still have levels that are persistent for that long. And if you encounter HIV, could you select out resistance? So what do people think? Jeannie. Yeah, I, 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 being involved in those studies um, it, for this very reason, I, I think we really don't know. And it makes me very nervous uh, because um, the tail, if it was predictable, I think I would feel a little bit better. better. We, there are some, um, some factors that are associated with longer duration of the tail, largely body fat. 
I believe, which concerns me. Um, so I don't think we know. It's a really good question. I think right now you probably have to treat it similarly. I think the DNA test in that situation is probably essential. And in fact, that's part of the algorithm for what's being done for discrepant analysis in HPTN 083 and 084. So I think you're probably going to be faced with a more definitive test like Steve mentioned. Hi, I'm uh, Sarah McBath from the University of Pittsburgh. I have a question actually going back to Dr. Blank's talk this morning regarding LGV and um, your recommendation in New York at least to treat any rectal um, chlamydia that's positive for presumed LGV among people living with HIV, if I'm remembering that right. So I have zero, yeah, yeah I have zero data in my part of the country, but I certainly see some cases um, where people have proctitis that I think is consistent with LGV. So um, as an HIV care provider, should we kind of expand New York's recommendations to the rest of the country? Because we, we don't have any epidemiological data about how much of our chlamydia are those LGV serovars. Sue, do you want to clarify about uh, that? Because I don't think you said that. Yeah. You didn't say treat all rectal chlamydia with three weeks of doxycycline. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. I might have, uh, so I misinterpreted? All HIV positive. Among HIV positive people with. Sorry, you would treat all HIV infected people with rectal chlamydia regardless of presentation, even if they're asymptomatic with three weeks of doxy? I don't think so. Okay. No, only if they have sim only symptoms if they have of proctitis. proctitis. Oh, yeah. symptomatic. Proctitis. Okay, I'm sorry I misinterpreted. So in, in people with proctitis, presume, I would say, right. if they're HIV infected, that you could be seeing an LGV strain if it's chlamydia positive and treat for three weeks. Okay. I'd also add to that, there was a presentation at Croy this year that looked at an equivalent regimen that uh, of azithromycin. And I can't remember the dose. I think it was once or twice a week for three weeks, and it looked pretty good. So just be aware that some people are looking at that. But right now, doxy is definitely the thing. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, sorry yeah. about that. No, that's good. It's no, great. It's a, we would, it's we want people to go away with the right, right. <laughs> the right recommendation. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, and I'm sorry about that. Um, but I, I think this is, it's really a vexing is issue. And I think, it, oh. I think one of the things that you might consider, it's not going to be enough to come up with treatment recommendations for your specific area. Um, but, I mean, if you do have puzzling cases, there are, CDC does have a reference lab, and you can contact them through your local public health lab, and they can help arrange if you have a particularly um, difficult case. But um, that, that will help you in the one-off, not okay. so much in the, in the making a policy decision. And, right. and if I could comment, we are, anecdotally, a lot of providers, particularly in HIV care settings, have told me that when they're treating garden variety asymptomatic chlamydia, they see more treatment failures when they use azithromycin single dose than seven days of doxycycline. Julie Dombrowski right now in Seattle is leading a randomized control trial in individuals HIV and non-HIV infected with rectal chlamydia, asymptomatic, randomizing them to those two regimens. So we should have more information on that. My bias is to go with the doxy. I think it's more effective, but that's just because people call me and tell me they're seeing azithromycin treatment failures. Mike, have you had that experience? Doxy also. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't had that experience, but I will say that I think that there's, there's physiologic data that suggests that, you know, doxy is less dependent on all sorts of intrinsic factors in the rectal mucosa but that azithro is, and uh, it's just a less effective drug in that compartment. 
So just to be clear, so if someone who's HIV positive comes with straining um, and bleeding and tenesmus, think of LGV, uh, the, the more invasive strain, and you want to treat for longer. <coughs> Jerry. Hey. Hi. Um, it, I actually have two questions, um, but the first is about PrEP and the, uh, the levels, uh, rectal versus vaginal and maybe urethral, and not knowing exactly why it works, as you mentioned. I'm, I'm wondering, is there any data, if you remember way back when, when we were young, uh, and I don't we were trying to give people 1,200 milligrams of AZT every day, and then we found out later that it, we were trying to get serum levels like they were in the test tube, but really it had its effect inside intracellularly. Is there any data about intracellular levels of tenofovir in those, in those places? Because I'm guessing what you're doing is just sticking a Q-tip in and uh, getting, a, getting a, a level in the fluids that are there. So you're right, it's the intracellular levels of, of these drugs, the nucleosides, like old AZT, but the current tenofovir as well, and FTC. But the data that I showed you with, from the female genital tract is actually tissue biopsy data. Yeah. So that is tissue intracellular data. Okay. Those are intracellular okay. levels. And the other one's uh, just a real quick question for uh, Dr. Blank. Um, and, you know, you showed the increases in pharyngeal gonorrhea, or excuse me, chlamydia, uh, in recent. And I'm wondering, is, is that just because we can test for it now? Okay, well, I, I, what I showed What I showed were um, increases in anorectal chlamydia and gonorrhea okay. in New York City. Okay, because I, I mean, some of it does seem to be seeing like more people are reporting pharyngeal chlamydia, and we just couldn't test for it before. Because and, our, and, 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 our and routine that testing tests yeah. for both, even though the recommendations say don't test for yeah. pharyngeal chlamydia, but you get the result. Yeah. So, so. so we act on it when we see it. Okay. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Uh, I've got a question about uh, intrapartum positive HIV tests. Um, so we've got a lot of patients, some of them, well, a lot of them, establish care in uh, when they're delivering. And every once in a while, we'll get back, uh, it's like every month or so, we'll have one patient who has a positive fourth generation test. And we don't have the viral load back or the CD4 count back um, by the time delivery happens. And we get different answers from our MFMs, but is there any guidance as far as whether we should presumptively, you know, in presume it's acute HIV and do a C-section or not? It's it is a, a complicated scenario. There's a lot of uh, anxiety at that point, and we we get a lot of calls on that too. Um, we have medications like raltegravir that drop the load viral load incredibly quickly, but it still takes a week. I mean, it's not going to drop it in a period of three or four hours. The recommendation is if you have a positive screening test and you're waiting for the viral load to assume that it's positive and start her on therapy. But whether or not she goes to a vaginal delivery or a cesarean delivery was going to depend on whichever provider is managing her pregnancy and their comfort level. Um, a lot of the providers that I work with would do a cesarean in that setting, assuming that she, the test is truly positive and she has a high viral load because she's not been on therapy. And is there a role for intrapartum AZT? Yeah. 
intravenous AZT? Yeah, so the, um, the, the recommendation for IV AZT is based on really old studies, so it's still existing in the literature as a recommendation, but now if we have a woman who's fully suppressed on an effective regimen, it's really an optional um, to add IV AZT during delivery for that extra protection. Most people think it doesn't add very much if she's fully suppressed already. Um, in this setting you're describing where you're not sure really what's going on, I think the role of IV AZT is clear, I would add it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think just to add, for the baby, this baby, if this is acute HIV, is at high risk, and this is the baby that we would give three drugs at treatment doses and not um, AZT only, so. Yeah, I, I had a quick question about uh, fourth generation and have we moved to a fifth generation antigen antibody test? <laughs> and is there, is there any, uh, is it better or, you know, so I think my understanding is, first of all, they're getting rid of that terminology. So the generation thing is out. They won't be calling it. They'll, it'll be more descriptive about what it is. Jeannie, what, what's the next one coming? There's something in the pipeline. You don't know? Anybody know? There is something brewing. I know there's fourth generation oral coming. I know that. But I don't know about a fifth generation. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't know. Does anybody know here? No. No, no. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, so they recently, are a theoretical we, question. We, uh, our, lab, our lab asked us about, uh, you know, they had heard something about some new testing because we it's, had the same problem. It's not uh, commercially available yet. I, I heard a talk from the CDC recently about things that are being considered to try to make the test even more sensitive That's earlier. Right. Uh, nothing's commercially available yet. Okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for what? We didn't know anything. <laughs> All right, any last questions? Can I add two comments? So just yes. um, because we have a couple of minutes. Again, just a somebody asked me at the break about this, um, and I want to highlight two other areas that are probably going to come out in the new treatment guidelines from CDC on STDs, probably in the spring. One is somebody asked me about routine screening for mycoplasma genitalium um, in the setting of MSM or sexual health because there is now a NAT test available that is approved for mycoplasma genitalium. Um, there are very likely going to be recommendations that do not sanction routine screening. There's really no role for routine screening for mycoplasma genitalium. There are questions about whether you should use it in syndromes like cervicitis, urethritis, proctitis, because it can cause proctitis. Right now, um, it's probably not going to be recommended as a routine diagnostic test, but you might think about it in people who have treatment failure for those syndromes. So just be aware it's out there, but I would not go running to order it because we really, <coughs> particularly in asymptomatic patients, there's no role. The other thing I think is going to change is that routine treatment for trichomoniasis in vaginal trichomoniasis in, in women um, is going to be seven days. So whether you're HIV infected or whether you're not, single dose treatment is not going to be recommended because you have much higher rates of eradication with a week's worth of therapy. Lots of debate about whether we should do that in men. Um, that, that is actually a treatment trial that I think needs to be done, uh, unaddressed, um, but something we should uh, be aware of. And I, and I hope that at some point in the future we will have more conversation about some of these other infections which are challenging. So I, I also heard two things in the break that I think are worth mentioning. One was a question about using PrEP in transgender and the worry that uh, TDF-FTC lowers hor hormonal levels. And this has been well studied already, and the answer is no. 
that it does, TDF-FTC prep does not affect levels of hormones, um, including hormone replacement. Um, the converse is less well known. So does hormonal therapy lower the levels of tenofovir and make prep less effective? And that's, the data are less clear about that answer. It looks like there is a decrease, but it may not be clinically significant, but really the data is not there to make a definitive recommendation, I think. So I think most people for transgender, which the population certainly in need of PrEP because the rates of HIV acquisition are high, I think the safest thing to do is to recommend daily TDF-FTC right now. So not to go to on-demand and not to go to TAF-FTC. And then the other question, uh, Mike, Michael or Sue, the question was in our area of the world, of course, Borrelial infection, like Lyme disease, is pretty common. <laughs> And does that affect syphilis testing at all? <laughs> Is there any interaction or false positives or? I think, I think um, you know, based on literature for some years back now, I, I was always under the impression that um, syphilis could cause false positive Lyme disease tests, but I don't think the reverse was ever documented to be true. I will just add that um, when, at one point when people were obsessing about doxypep um, for syphilis, Paul Sachs reminded me, and you may know Paul from the HIV ID blog, he said, well, you know, we're practically already giving it in New England because everybody's on doxy throughout the summer. So uh, I don't know why you're so worried about it. It also huh. protects them against their syphilis. And that's, there's some truth that's to that in our something. area as well. Lots of tick-borne yeah. disease. You okay, know, can, well, I, can, can I, before you wrap up, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. You know, there's just one thing that I think I bollocked up that I wanted to make sure I, I got clear for the folk. There, there was a gentleman who was asking about LGV and what we do as far as our HIV positive patients is those who are symptomatic with, rec, who have rectal symptoms, we treat with 21 days of doxy and asymptomatics, which was the one, we'll use a week of doxy. Okay. So please join me in thanking our panel.